Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I am thrilled to welcome back Impex Beverages as the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor. Each month, we'll be talking about a new set of single casks, maybe feature a chosen distillery or a single cask from a chosen distillery. Listen for the mid-roll for more info on this month's offerings. And now, a brand new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we're diving into the noble experiment, as it were, going back into the history of prohibition. We're going to be talking with Professor Mark Schrad. He is a professor at Villanova University, director of Russian Area Studies uh, in the Department of Political Science. Had to read that to make sure I got all the titles correct. And I have him on specifically to talk about his book that came out uh, late 2021, correct? Smashing the Liquor Machine, A Global History of Prohibition. So, Mark, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. This should be fun. Absolutely. So, I mean, as a, you know, a whiskey podcast, a liquor podcast, we often skirt the question of prohibition and everything that comes around it, let alone the kind of global context of it. So we'll certainly be focusing on that today. But before we get into the book itself, I did want to ask you, about your um, passion for anyone who follows you on Instagram, you certainly know what I'm talking about, which is the uh, just retro and older typewriters. And how, how did that become a passion of yours? Oh, yeah. I don't know. It just kind of happened. I, I think I wanted a, um, I wanted like a separate keyboard for my computer, like a, like an auxiliary one. And I found an, an old typewriter. There's this place about a, I don't know, a decade ago that made like USB conversion kits for old typewriters and you could use them on your computer. Uh, and I thought that was really cool. So I, I fixed it up. It, it didn't, it, you know, the novelty wore off after about five minutes. Uh, and and so, you know, using it hooked up to a, a you know computer monitor didn't really work. But then uh, but I was like, hey, these things are great. I can just, you know, I can type up things as much as I want. And, uh, you know, I don't really use them for writing as much. I use them for grading, uh, grading papers. But also, you know, just I, I, I'm fascinated by the ideas that especially like in the hundred years ago, before World War One, you know, when, when everybody and their brother who was a, a, an engineer had their own kind of crazy ideas about how to get ideas out of your head and then like translate them through your fingers and onto a piece of paper, right? So everybody, everybody who was an engineer, uh, you know, had their own weird designs and some succeeded, some failed, but it's always fascinating to see how they, they evolved. But I think that's kind of where it's from. <laughs> it's a novel one for sure. I've seen people interested in, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, more tactile keyboards, mm-hmm. and and I guess you would call them kind of steampunk in a way or something. But truly, going back to those kinds of typewriters is a whole different ball game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to track them down, so it kind of you, when it, it start, it kind of started off like steampunky, and then just kept going further and further in that direction. Uh, you know, so <laughs> yeah. So, so it was any. I know you said you don't really use it for writing. Was any part of this book written on on one of those babies? Oh no, no, I couldn't possibly. I mean, it's a huge. Well, have you seen it? It's a, it's a doorstop, yeah. right? So seven hundred fifty pages. There's like no way to 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 draft and redraft things on a on a on a typewriter like that. And there are some people who do uh, in this sort of the typewriter community that they use them for you know for poetry and and shorter stories and stuff like that. And you know, God bless them, that's great. But I just could never <laughs> could never do it. I sat down actually in, in the, uh, the 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 the, the author's photo in the uh the, on the dust jacket to the book I, you know i don't like i don't like author's photos to begin with but so the only one i could come up with was a picture that somebody took of me i was at a speed typing contest uh using a machine 
<clears throat> that had two two keyboards that had no shift key because the idea was that you know back in the day they, they, you know, there was this argument that if you didn't if you had like two keyboards you wouldn't have to spend all the time hitting you know shift and then s to hit it you know to make an uppercase just have an uppercase s key right you know obviously that was kind of dumb uh in, in hindsight <laughs> um didn't really save any time but uh but yeah that was like the only thing that's uh that, that was part of it though i did you know i did i did sneak in a couple you know typewriter references there are a couple typewriter pictures in the book but uh nothing really revolves around it uh per se hey had to ask had to ask yeah. so so jumping right into the book, I mean, you know, as I was saying to you before we started recording, this is, uh, we've got about an hour and a half. This is a hell of a book to get through. There are topics that we just will not get to. Um, so in kind of designing this interview, I thought about one I listened to, as I usually do with other podcasts, interviews, et cetera, that you've done um, both closer to the book's publication and also more recently, and tried to kind of pick out the topics that were lesser talked about. Um, so as a whole, the book is in many ways, in many ways, a revisionist history. It's brand new. It's a new angle on things, a new angle on prohibition as a movement, particularly in the aspect that it's not just the U S it's not unique to the U S uh, the book itself structured. And this is for people listening. I definitely urge you to get the book. You'll want to, by the end of the interview, for sure. Uh, it begins and ends with the U.S., but it's divided otherwise into three sections, Continental Empire, the British Empire, and the U.S. as a third part. And I had heard you on uh, multiple interviews uh, apologizing for the length of the, of the book and saying that, you know, at first you'd consider doing maybe either two volumes or it had been suggested to do two volumes, one U.S. and one international, and ultimately you didn't. And... Um, in that vein. And so the reason that you gave, and I know I'm putting your words in your mouth and doing a super long intro here, I promise I'll give you plenty of time. <laughs> but the idea was that if you had two volumes, the American audience is probably just going to look at the American volume and pass up the international one. Um, and frankly, the in, while the US one revisits the history, the international one's the history that we don't know in this country. So in that mm -hmm. vein, most of the interview is going to focus more on the global picture and the, the larger picture rather than the, the U.S. history, uh, except when, you know, really apt to compare. And so just starting with the idea that this is a new look at this history. You, know, you mentioned in uh, when you were on new books in drugs, addiction, and recovery back in the now two Decembers ago, that narratives on alcohol politics in the U.S. don't really makes sense when you apply it to the rest of the world. You know, there are no Bible thumping evangelists in Russia, which was the first prohibition country. So what were some of the inflection points for you that made you look at this history and say, hey, there's a new narrative here. There's a different narrative than what we've been presented with. Right. And yeah, I think that, that was kind of the the focus. I think you get it right when it comes to you know, some of these uh, these, these bigger questions of the book, you know, as, as it was proposed, it was not supposed to be, you know, like half, Amer you know, American history, half sort of international. It was supposed to be entirely international history. Uh, and then when you start to look at it and sort of get some of these insights, you start to have a new appreciation for uh, sort of a, these different elements in American history. And it, it kind of 
required uh, a deeper dive into sort of American history at that point in time. So, um, so yeah, so I, I had thought about it for a long time as, you know, when it came to that point of maybe we should make split this into two books. And uh, in addition to the reasons that you gave, yeah, you know, I didn't want the, um, you know, just American audiences just to focus on American politics. Um, but also, you know, the, the, uh, the publishers were like, no, we've got you under contract for one book and one book is what you're going to give us. And they're like, all right, uh, <laughs> I can't, can't argue with that, I suppose. Um, but, but yeah, I think a lot of it actually comes from, you know, I'm, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm, I'm recently been appointed uh, director of Russian area studies, Russia, former Soviet union has kind of been my, my focus, uh, sort of internationally in terms of politics. Um, and my previous book was called vodka politics. And it's kind of a, uh, you know, it's also a long book, but it's, it's essentially a, a, a drunk history of Russia, right? I mean, it's a, it's a deep dive to understand why it is that that Russians drink so much. And, uh, you know, instead of looking at cultural arguments, I, I kind of highlight that these are, um, you know, that that's this, this fabled Russian weakness for vodka is, is kind of the result of, you know, generations of uh, economic and political decision making that are at the heart of sort of autocracy, uh, putting the benefit and the welfare of the state ahead of the society when it comes to things like sobriety and temperance and stuff like that. And so um, and so that's kind of, you know, that was my stepping off point um, was with the previous book and, and, and getting into the deep history of that, recognizing that, you know, uh, that there were these different uh, sort of movements for temperance and sobriety uh, internationally, you know, at the at the same time as as in the United States, and they were very much linked together. Um, but as you're saying, right, they didn't have the same understanding of of the reasons behind it that we usually ascribe to uh, sort of American history, which is, you know, that it's you know that that temperance and prohibitionism were, you know, conservative, reactionary, midwestern, evangelical, Bible thumping Protestants. Um, you know, trying to tell you what you can and can't do because of their version of the Bible. And like I said, you know, one of the first countries, the first prohibition country on earth was Russia. And they don't have Bible thumping Midwestern evangelical Protestants. And in fact, uh, in many cases, uh, you know, it was uh, a, definitely an anti-imperial and anti-autocratic system, uh, you know, movements. So so tied into anything that had to do with, with czarism, uh, because the czars were making, you know, one third of all the revenue of the, you know, the entire Russian empire came from selling their own people vodka. And the idea that, you know, that was that was good for the state, that was good for the, uh, you know, for, for the empire, uh, not so good for, you know, the drunken peasants who were, you know, who, who were paying the price. Um, and so you had all sorts of, um, you know, in Russia, you had pretty much anybody who was opposed to the czar from from liberals to, uh, you know, even to the Bolsheviks, Lenin and, and Trotsky and so on, uh, were dyed in the wool, you know, temperance advocates, right? And, and so... That was kind of the stepping off point. It's like, okay, so why is it, you know, that these, you know, we we focus so much on American history because it's what we know, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and so, but if you ask that question as, as kind of a social science question and not just a history question, like what causes prohibition, you know, not just what causes American prohibition, but what were the you know the causes of all this in you know in eleven different countries and uh, and even more in colonies around the world, um, you know, and just look at the United States as just one case study um then it kind of opens the horizons for maybe other interpretations and other uh, you know other other perspectives and so that's kind of where it came from was sort of the experience in russia and that's kind of where you know uh, after the intro of the first chapter it kind of picks up with uh with russia it's kind of a condensed version of uh of the vodka politics book and then 
and then it kind of travels around, you know, Europe and uh, and, and then the British Empire to look at see what sort of the dynamics there were there, and and ultimately that was kind of the focus. That was the plan, right? That was the plan of the book. Uh, was you know, we'll make it be eight chapters, maybe, uh, and we will start in Russia. We'll go, you know, empire by empire and see what, um, you know, see what temperance and prohibition was in like in in all these other places, and then maybe have like one nice little. A concluding chapter at the end to tie it all up in a bow for for an American readership and say, oh, this is the stuff that we learned, um, and then of course that that final chapter turned into uh, you know another nine chapters, and so uh, so yeah, kind of took on a life of its own at that point. I mean, just picking out a couple of things uh, that I think everything will get to in there, but one of the things from the beginning of the book, I mean, the, the liquor taxes alone filling government coffers. I don't have the year in front of me in which this data was taken from. But as mentioned, you know, Russia, it's 26% of state income comes from liquor taxes, 25% in the US, 23 in Britain, 20 in the German Empire. So it must, you know, pre-World War One, um, mm-hmm. 16% in Holland, 15 in Sweden and Belgium, 12% Denmark, 11% France and Norway, and 9% Switzerland and Austro-Hungarian Empire. I mean, 1915, liquor is the fifth largest industry in the US with 1.5 billion in revenues annually. So it's it's huge money that mm-hmm. is driving it, and so it's it's not just as you said the the Bible thumping thing doesn't really work because it doesn't address the economic side of things, um, but there's also the socioeconomic and the moral side of things that doesn't quite fit. And um, right in the preface, one of the more striking things that you wrote about was that the biographers of people that we know, you know, names that are eponymous with with U.S. history and world history. Um, William Lloyd Garrison, Stanton, Frederick Douglass, Leo Tolstoy, Gandhi, Ataturk, Masaryk. I mean, the biographers of these people go, as you put it, auspiciously silent when it comes to their subjects, their subjects, prohibitionism, as such a supposedly villainous trait doesn't jive with their otherwise heroic accomplishments. And, you know, similarly, those whose histories were centered on prohibition, like Carry Nation, come off as playing this this narrative of the poor, deluded, hysterical, half-crazed religious maniac. And I'm, I'm curious in particular, because this is such a, a change, you know, as, a, as an academic, as an author, as a writer and researcher, um, and also someone who obviously as, as a professor, you're concerned with, um, with things like publishing. And, and um, I think you're in your career, you're good with tenure, but you know, having to deal with tenure oh, questions. Yeah. Um, when you're writing a history that challenges the conventional wisdom like this, um, what kind of challenges do you face in, in getting it written, getting the interest of a publisher? Yeah. Uh, I'll, t- I'll take you on, on, a, on a quick little side note, right? You know, so my own background, my own history is in political science, but also a heavy dose of, of history uh, as well. Um, you know, and I think the the differences between political science and history aren't all that great in the grand scheme of things. I think it's more of a methodological approach than anything really, you know, in terms of uh, one of, uh, well, I guess, one of those historian friends of mine, when I spent three years uh, teaching at the University of Illinois after the uh, after the Great Recession and there were no jobs to be found, you know, permanent jobs, uh, you know, that was kind of an important time for me. Uh, so I was meeting with uh, Mark Steinberg, this famous historian of uh, the Russian Revolution, right? And uh, 
And uh, I, I wanted to talk about prohibition in the Russian Revolution, right, with him. And so, you know, this is this guy uh, is like one of the most venerated historians of of Russia. And so, uh, I figured since we were at the same university, it would be nice to to talk with him. He's a wonderful guy, and so I invited him out for for a drink. And and um, uh, and so I wanted to to pick his mind as as this great historian of the Russian Revolution. I was like, okay, what caused the Russian Revolution? You know, we went to we went to an Irish bar. We had a couple of beers. And I finally I popped this question. I got my pen out, was ready to take notes at whatever he had to say. Um, and he just kind of chuckled at me. He's like, he's like, I'm like, you're the guy, you're this, you know, what's the state of the art in the history profession on this question of what caused the Russian Revolution? And he, he kind of not 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 mean or anything like that, he just kind of chuckled. He's like, he's like, Mark, nobody in history has asked that question in 30 years. That's not what history is. You know, the question of what causes what, you know, he says, uh, you know, in, in history nowadays, if you want a um, like the cutting edge history profession uh, take on the Russian Revolution, it's it's very experiential. Like, what was it like to be a uh, a proletarian worker in Petrograd in 1914? That's kind of cutting edge history. So they don't look at the big questions, the big causal issues. And I think they've kind of conceded that more to uh, political scientists and political scientists tend to be, and I'm stereotyping a lot here, <laughs> um, tend to be focused more on sort of, you know, uh, kind of the stereotypical uh, quantitative analysis, trying to to suss out causation with, uh, you know, uh, large end studies and stuff like that. And, and certainly nobody's really focusing in on, on, temperance and prohibition history so I'm, I'm kind of in the middle i've got and i've got this huge field that's that nobody is in you know the, the historians are doing their thing the political scientists are over there doing their thing um and so that was kind of the, the opening for me to come at this question that nobody's really looked at you know that uh, in terms of what causes prohibition what are those those big sorts of uh, big sorts of issues and so that that was kind of the the approach uh that that came into it and so oftentimes i find myself um you know, I, I don't fit in with political scientists. I don't fit in with historians. Um, usually, uh, I guess professionally, I, I, you know, I'm usually like the only political scientist at uh, at conferences for, for you know full of historians. And and so there are some disciplinary divides, and you know, you know where to step and not to step, and 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 everybody is is very you know, across the board is, is very territorial, right? You know, so mm -hmm. political scientists don't like it when economists play in our sandbox and, and historians don't like it when political scientists play in their sandbox. And so I, I get it, right? You know, everybody's kind of territorial and, and, um, uh, and you know, you just kind of have to, to shrug those off and, and uh, you know, just kind of, kind of roll with the punches in some cases. And we also learn to be kind of uh, conversant in in many different um, you know fields and and so you know the, this book is not only about uh, history and, and political science social science and sociology there's there's public health uh, you know there's uh, international relations so I mean all of these divisions that you know we, we kind of put ourselves into these different categories um you know you kind of have to learn to uh you know to swim in multiple seas or play in multiple sandboxes and, and not get upset when other people you know uh, accuse you of, of uh you know this is my sandbox you can't play here like no it's it's, a, it's everybody's sandbox let's all play together right so um so that, i mean those those are some of the challenges uh that, that kind of come from from doing these sorts of things but the other one i should say <clears throat> More generally is, uh, and, and also from that time, you know, I got my PhD in, in 2007, which is right at the time of the uh, 
um, global financial crisis and there were no jobs. And so <laughs> I, I ended up down at the University of Illinois for three years, you know, just kind of as an adjunct, just teaching and teaching and teaching. Um, you know, one year went by, there were no jobs. Two years went by three, you know, three years. Um, and so at, at the end of the day, uh, you know, my wife and I, you know, we were married, had three kids at that point in time, you know, as an adjunct, just there's no way to make ends meet. Um, and, and so my wife and I decided that, uh, you know, hey, if, if, if nothing works out in like this fourth cycle of trying to get a, a permanent gig, um, you know, we're just going to pack it up and move to Washington, D.C. and do whatever it is you do with a Ph.D. in political science, you know, in Washington, D.C. Uh, thankfully, I don't know what that is because <laughs> that's when things kind of started to open up. But one of the things that helped with that was, um, you know, I, I was like, I, I would feel really, really bad if I abandoned academia. But I had this idea, which ultimately became the, the vodka politics book of, of a, a book length monograph, kind of this drunk history of Russia. And I really wanted to write it. Right. And so that's <clears throat> where I started writing, um, you know, uh, some some sample chapters, uh, including the one about alcohol and the Russian Revolution. I was just telling you about. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and and so I, I hopped in the van, uh, drove up to the Midwest Political Science Association meeting in Chicago, uh, which is a big meeting every year. Uh, and, and just kind of shopped the idea around, uh, you know, the, around the books, the book room with all these vendors and, uh, and it just killed everybody wanted it. Uh, and part of the reason I think that that was pretty good. And what, I guess the lesson I learned from it was that at that point in time, I, I was kind of resigned to the fact that I wasn't going to be in academia or that, that there, there was no, you know, um, uh, there, there was no guarantee of that. And so I wasn't writing for a tenure committee. I wasn't writing for a higher, I was just going to write a book for me, you know, and if, 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 if I found it interesting and, uh, and compelling, well, I was going to write it just for me. I, I was going to get rid of all the academic jargon and the sentences that run on for 30 lines and, you know, and, uh, and it just try to be more conversant, you know, and, and kind of lose that academic style that I think, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of learn and, and, and it worked out fairly well, you know, and so that's, and I've, I've, I've kind of st stayed with that ever since is, is kind of rebelling against the, the you know, the, the jargon laden, uh, highfalutin academic style and just tell some stories that, that people can read and, and, and try to enjoy and, and maybe tell us something about bigger picture issues about causation. So, I mean, in, in reading this book, it, it was, I couldn't help but think about uh, the previous author who's been on the show with me, also a professor, um, Dr. Edward Slingerland at the University of British Columbia. And uh, I interviewed him in September about his book, Drunk. And uh, it, it, in many ways, the journey kind of paralleled that as I was reading it, because I was thinking, you know, he's a, someone who specializes mainly in, in ancient China, but also dabbles in sociology and, and kind of human experience. And then he comes out with this book about how getting drunk and intoxicated changed and may have caused civilization. You know, it's, it's one of those out of left field things that just kind of works because yeah, yeah. you dared to go into another sandbox. Mm -hmm. um, so there are some, you know, some questions that I'm going to ask that are in, informed by the book, but I think parallel quite nicely in terms of how things are described. And, and as you say, both of you tell it as a story and it's written for an audience to understand and they don't have to check every footnote. And, um, you know, as a recovering medievalist and some one, someone who wanted to become a professor at one point, I know those 30 line sentences. I was very yeah, fond yeah. of them only as a writer, <laughs> but not as a reader. So totally right, right. So, uh, so one other, I shouldn't say one other, cause there are going to be a lot, but another change to the narrative is that prohibition 
has largely been seen or entirely seen, if you want to make that argument, as a white man's history uh, before this. You know, you have a chapter that I think is probably a brilliant chapter title called Liquor in the Ethnic Cleansing of North America. Um, obviously, this comes in in the in the third part of the book, but I just wanted to pull out a quote and then we can talk a little bit about this, which is that the fact that we don't generally consider Indian removal in terms of alcohol politics, again, underscores the degree to which prohibition history has largely been limited to white people's history. And you know, just think thought processes about how Jackson, you know, Andrew Jackson saw removal as a benevolent gesture and how tribes were volunteer voluntarily moving west as as much as they can be called voluntary at that point to remove themselves that's a history that's not really told we're just told the white man's history the colonizer history the imperialist history so in looking towards the history of those who were not white who were not the colonizers who were um suffering from alco-imperialism alco-colonialism as you put it uh how challenging was it to find those narratives as well and try to find the voice of those on that side of the equation instead of the normal narrative yeah i mean they've got a lot of that's that's kind of uh, folded into there but uh, but but i think it's, it's true so uh, another kind of a side story like when i was writing the book i also had in, in you know in, in mind you know I was, I was like i have to to write like a an article that'll get you know that'll get published and and people will highlight you know maybe get in the you know the op-ed piece at the New York Times or something like that, um, and and so I, but I started writing a number of these. I you know, found that the book you know has a number of these like little vignettes that you can kind of pull out and 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 publish. Um, <clears throat> and one of them was based on you know Ken Burns' uh, documentary on on prohibition, you know, and so he's got this three part prohibition series came out in what two thousand. 10 or something like that so it's been 12 yeah. years um and uh and somewhere in there um i, I just highlighted that uh, uh that that's you know if you watch the ken burns documentary and it's great you know it's ken burns you know it's 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 you know it's there to tell the story of what we know or what we think we know about about prohibition um and it but it really doesn't have you know and any Africa, aside from you know maybe like the Wynton Marcellus and and sort of the bouncy jazz score that they have and, and stuff like that, um, there really aren't any African Americans, Native Americans. It's it's all white people's history, right? And so I ended up writing a um, and this this is something that that kind of became very glaring as I, I kind of moved from the international side to sort of American side and recognized that hey, um, you know, looking at the rest of the world. Alcohol and excuse me, prohibition and temperance wasn't so much of a conservative reactionary movement as it was a anti-colonial, anti-imperial movement. Right? That's that's kind of the focus, um, and that's you know you probably heard the story on, on another podcast and whatnot. This is I was giving a presentation to some of my colleagues, and uh, um, and uh, one of my colleagues here at Villanova, Jennifer Dixon, she says, "Okay, if, if I'm going to buy your argument that that temperance and prohibitionism was you know anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism." Um, where are the Native Americans? Where are the Native Americans in your in your story? And I'm like, uh, you're right. I mean, they're not there. They're just not there. And that's that was the moment that this became this huge book and, and effectively doubled the size and took two more years to write. Um, and it's sort of 
made me look at sort of, you know, this this colonial history uh, and imperial history throughout the United States in terms of relations with sort of the powerful, uh, predominantly white populations and, and, uh, and marginalized Native American and, and African American populations. And so um, so that was kind of the focus of, you know, uh, and, and recognizing that when you do that, you start to realize that, um, you know, America's first prohibitionists were its first peoples, you know, from the very get go. In fact, they predate the United States, uh, you know, in, from the very beginning. Uh, you know, you have Native American tribesmen, Native American leaders, seeing how the introduction of what they talked about as the, the white man's wicked water. Um, and especially we're talking about fermented, be- or excuse me, distilled beverages, not fermented ones uh, primarily. So, uh, you know, so whiskeys and rums and so on, um, you know, introducing this alcohol of a potency that had never before been seen was just mind blowing. It is so destructive to their communities uh, that across the board, Native American leaders were, uh, you know, were, were fighting against this, you know, this, this liquor machine, you know, this thing that was in profiting the um you know the, the colonizers at the expense of, of the colonized and, and so when you start to see that you're like oh geez this prohibition history goes way back further than uh than what we're usually told and what we're usually told begins with white people right it, start, it starts usually in the 18 uh, 1820s 1830s uh the american temperance society and and you know kind of starts with that sort of social organization um but by that point in time you know prohibitionism and temperance had been around in the united states for uh you know for 100 years already you know <laughs> especially amongst native american populations so so that was that was the challenge and then of course trying to um trying to find you know uh information and and try to to uncover some of these uh, you know, earlier narratives and earlier understandings of, of what was going on. Uh, and in many cases, just rely, you know, meant relying predominantly on primary sources of evidence, right? Primary. Uh, so, so going back and, and, you know, getting in the archives and, and instead of reading what other people had written about temperance and prohibitionism, uh, you know, just kind of scrapping all that, seeing, you know, say, okay, you've got your interpretation of what you think it was. I'm going to go back and see what they were thinking. Um, and what's really fascinating is that if you go back before, you know, well, certainly before the, the the prohibition era, you know, if you go back to maybe the 1890s and before, it's it's fascinating how open people were about you know, what they talked about is the liquor problem as an issue in American politics. It wasn't some sort of niche thing. It wasn't something you can kind of put up on the on the shelf and you go, oh, this is all very quaint that, you know, people have a drinking problem. It was part and parcel of American politics in, in ways that most people didn't see as, as being siloed or something you could be segregating off to the side. Uh, but it was was part of that that broader issue. And that's something I, I kind of wanted to you know, I think I think you mentioned this before at the, at the beginning, calling it kind of a, a revisionist history. And I, you know, I take that. Um, I, I I think that's a, a, a good way to describe it. Uh, it certainly is a revision of the accepted wisdom that we've kind of been taught for mo- much of our lives. Um, but also recognizing that a lot of it is just kind of going back to sort of the originals in many cases and seeing uh, what's uh, what the evidence actually has to say, as opposed to what other people's interpretations of that evidence had to say. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the other comparison that kept coming to mind was, uh, again, recovering medievalist. So um, I kept thinking of this, this historian, Jonathan Riley Smith, uh, who was a Crusades historian. And for, you know, for hundreds of years, we considered the Crusades to be one thing. It was it was a religious war a holy war um mm-hmm. 
And that was pretty much it. There was really very little nuance. And he came along and looked at some of the original documents, some of the earliest texts and said, hey, you know, we've got the words of the people on this. And it's like, it's not just about this. It's about Europe having, you know, too many sons and not enough land. And, you know, all these other socioeconomic issues that caused it. And sure, there was a religious aspect to it, but when it came down to it, it was so much more complex and nuanced. And uh, it really, it changed the entire field of crusades history. That was, you know, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's still changing. Um, but the, so the other thing that I wanted to mention here was again, a, a tie-in with Dr. Sinkerlin was his book kind of ends in a way at the advent of distilled spirits. You know, his last chapter is about the, the dangers of alcohol and the dangers of distilled spirits in particular because of their potency in, in comparison to the fermented beverages and natural wines we had been drinking for thousands of years beforehand. Um, in your case, in many ways, prohibition temperance starts with distilled spirits, you know, with the Portuguese in the 1550s to the earliest um, German temperance organizations in the 16, early 1600s. Uh, so with, you know, with, with all of that, I guess the short question would be, is there any kind of sense of temperance or prohibition in societies that had alcoholic beverages before the advent of distilled liquors? Oh, I, yeah, I think there, there were, I mean, in many cases you had, uh, uh, you know, broadsides against, um, you know, against drunkenness, but it wasn't so much a uh, sort of what we would see as an organized temperance movement in, in sort of the same way, um, you know, when it comes to just kind of fermented beverages, because it really was kind of um, uh, a shift you know, from fermented beverages to to distilled beverages, uh, you know, a, a potency that was just um, completely different. And that was part of the industrial industrialization, industrial revolution, uh, and everything that kind of comes with that. Um, but, you know, up until that point, even if you're talking about uh, native populations in, you know, Australia or Africa or India or North America that, you know, in some cases had sort of indigenous, um, you know, traditions of palm wine or, or fermented beverages, um, you know, th- that was okay, right? You know, and, and th- that would be oftentimes overseen by the community. Uh, you know, it'd be even in Russia, you know, before the advent of vodka, you know, it was it was, um, you know, it was part of the, the communal celebrations of 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 the villages and, and, and so on. Um, so it wasn't seen as something that was necessarily, uh, you know, needed to have a, a stalwart opposition to. But it's only I think when you get to, you know, the distillation, uh, that, that's part of it. Um, but also sort of the the harnessing of that to, you know, and, and the profit making ca- capabilities of distilled liquors, um, you know, to either the state or to, uh, you know, to, I guess, the liquor concerns, the liquor traffic and, and, and everything that, that, you know, the, the massive profits that you can make um, from distilled alcohols that you can't necessarily make from fermented beverages. And so I think that's one of the reasons why you don't have like a, a huge temperance movements, uh, you know, in, in, in predominantly fermented based, I guess, society. I mean, you can even, even look at, uh, you know, France to some degrees, people talk about sort of the modern drinking of, of wines in France. And, you know, even in history, you know, even in my book, you know, France doesn't really get mentioned all that much, you know, it's just, yeah, yeah. They drink a lot of wine, but, uh, but 
people aren't making you know money over uh, you know on it hand over fist and they're not trying to to force it down people's gullets you know just to make a buck uh, or a franc, I suppose, in, in that particular case. But uh, um, so, yeah, I think so. I think I think there's a lot going on there. I think it's the industrialization, the process of distillation, but also harnessing that to the power of the states and and um, and sort of the, the big profit motive that's kind of driving the entire thing. And yeah, before moving on to the next topic, I just want to underscore uh, again for, quote from your book, something about that uh, when talking about Tomas uh, Masaryk with the Czechs, saying the Czechs would always buy beer. That was that was nothing new, but they only encountered alcohol-induced social issues when hard liquor was introduced. Uh, and there, there's a great quote that I'm going to um, paraphrase a bit, but that Masaryk blended Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, and Comte to say that modern alcoholism stemmed from a deep psychological need for the artificial induction of a state of superstition. And since superstitions were antithetical to modern rationalism, alcohol impeded enlightenment and communal prosperity. And um, I just wanted to, to mention that in particular, because again, going back to Dr. Singerland's book, a lot of the science behind what happens when you get drunk, when you get intoxicated with, with any intoxicant is this downregulation of the, of the prefrontal cortex and this idea that you're not thinking as much that you're, and as such, we make stupid decisions. We get into cars, we um, give away things in, in, in search of that next high off of it but it was it was worth particularly pointing out that check example because it 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 fit quite well mm-hmm. um i should say you know this is a question that i probably should have put at the beginning but it seems like a very simple question but we in america are, are used to the idea of prohibition with a capital p it's 13 year period it's the volstead act you know this is what it is but in terms of the the book and and looking at history in a global perspective, uh, I'd love you to to define and kind of separate temperance and prohibition with a lowercase p, uh, and you know how they interact and how they are different. Yeah, and that you know that that's another one. I I I will admit to kind of playing fast and loose with some of the the definitions in some of these uh, these cases. But one of the things that uh, when it comes to that dividing line between temperance and prohibition, um, you know, from the the usual explanations that we get from the you know from the literature, uh, there's kind of an acceptance that temperance is okay, prohibition is not. You know, temperance is kind of self-regulation. You know, I will not drink. I will choose not to drink. I will encourage others maybe not to to choose to drink. But prohibition is kind of the switch from sort of individual self-regulated morality to uh to legislation right so we're gonna and 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 you know, we're gonna force you not to drink uh you know so temperance seems okay uh prohibition generally does not i guess from the, from that more standard perception um <clears throat> but what I, I found to be really interesting uh in, in kind of doing this again kind of revisionist history of of uh, what, what temperance and prohibitionism was all about is that if you go back to the origins of what we're usually told is the temperance movement going back to, um, you know, to the American Temperance Society and, and Lyman Beecher and his, his six sermons on intemperance. Um, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing because again, if you watch something like, like Ken Burns documentary or read any sort of the, of the conventional wisdom about it, they say, well, you know, this is where temperance began. It started with these sorts of things. Of course there were, you know, sort of um, anti 
drunkenness polemics before then. Uh, but the people are like, well, you know, the, the thing was is that he wrote these six sermons and they were they were so great that it's it's you know spurned this entire movement. I'm like, one, I, I went back and I read them. They're not that great. Um, but the two, I guess the, the thing that that uh, that differentiates it and what sort of began the temperance movement is the exact same thing that later people were saying was all about prohibitionism, which is that we wanted to focus on the the drink seller. It wasn't a question of you know uh, if you go back and read the you know the the six sermons. Uh, it wasn't about, you know, fire and brimstone sermons about uh, about, you know, if you drink, you're going to go to hell uh, or anything like that. No, it was about, you know, we are all part of this community and it's not moral and it's not right for uh, certain members of that community to be effectively insubordinate, I guess, enslaving in some cases, using alcohol to subordinate other people uh, through a, through addiction. Um, and so that was the thing that he was focusing in on was is saying, OK, you know, uh, what made this different from sort of the earlier anti-alcohol sermons was that he kind of gave a, a blueprint for the way forward and, and saying so he was encouraging people to abstain from alcohol, essentially do a consumer boycott. So it wasn't just morality. It was economics. It was politics. And so we would encourage you all to to boycott alcohol, um, you know, so eventually this will become no longer a profitable enterprise and the the drink seller the saloon owner or the you know the, the whiskey maker um will eventually recognize that hey this isn't profitable and it's harmful to our to our community and he'll you know like any uh, i guess rational cost benefit analysis uh, individual will find more gainful areas of employment once they realize that there's no money to be made in alcohol he'll do something else that was kind of a little bit naive in that way i suppose but uh, but that was the idea it was that it was supposed to be a consumer boycott um against the liquor traffic right it wasn't so much about morality it wasn't so much about that so that's one of the reasons why i think you know that trying to get full circle around to this question about temperance and prohibitionism that I, I think that division line that we've been always been saying that, you know, that temperance is about individual abstinence and morality, whereas prohibitionism is legislation against, you know, this, um, uh, you know, the, the, the liquor traffic or, you know, and, and everything associated with that um, is, uh, is a little bit flimsy because that was the, the, that was the goal all throughout, I guess, sort of the modern temperance movement, at least as we're, we're um, you know, as we're introduced to it, I suppose. I mean, in introducing what would become the 18th Amendment, you're right that Senator Maura Shepard, this is in uh, 1916, he said it wasn't opposed to personal drinking. His quote was, I don't think we care We care to go as far as that. That is too much an invasion of personal liberty. It's about this end quote. And then, you know, it's about the seller as opposed to the drinker. And that becomes evident throughout the book that who the subject or the, of the focus is really the determinant factor, at least for me, in terms of what fit into a prohibitionist stance versus what might fit into a temperance stance. If you're talking about the, the drinker, temperance, drink less or abstain entirely, drink responsibly If in today's parlance, whereas the prohibition, at least it was a legislative top-down approach to, to stop that thing, but never infringing on the personal liberty of you know, being free to take a drink when you want it, as long as it was done you know, within reason. I suppose, whatever that means. Yes. Right. Um, and that, that became like one of the, the big issues in this whole thing. And, and again, this is a multi-year project and took a long time. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, the book was written more as a journey, right. You know, that, that it, 
I don't know. I always used to have this understanding that, you know, that, that, that people who write books, you know, they have all this accumulated wealth and knowledge and they're just going to, you know, put lay it out there like, uh, like Moses with the 10 commandments. Here's this, you know, but no, it's actually, actually, it was, it was more of the, these are the things that I'm finding as I'm going and I want to share it with you as I'm learning these things. So it's a voyage of my own self-discovery in many ways. Um, and so when it came to, you know, some of these questions that you're, you're, you're mentioning, um, you know, I, I was fortunate to have a, a lot of really good ears and, and soundboards to, to talk to, especially my wife in particular. So we would, I, I would, point out these things like the Morris Shepherd quote, you know, that I'm, I'm against the liquor traffic. I'm not against personal, um, you know, consumption of, of alcohol. Uh, and I think to our modern sensibilities and, and, you know, especially for me, like the, the litmus test was trying to convince my wife of, of some of these things, right. Is it, it's like, what, what, what's the difference? What does that matter? If you can't sell alcohol, you can't drink alcohol. Right. It, and so the common understanding was always that, you know, at least as we have it here is, is that uh, that's just, you know, pol you know, politicians are going to politic, I suppose, right? You know, that they're that this was just all double speak. You know, that they're you know that they're going to say that they're doing this, but what they're really doing, their focus is on individual consumption. Um, and and one of the the takeaways from this, and this is kind of I, I write a lot about this in the uh, you know in the conclusion, um, is that one of the reasons I think that we fail to understand temperance and prohibition history is precisely because our understandings of liberty and freedom have changed in the hundred or so years since, since prohibitionism, you know, that we have different conceptions of individual liberty uh, than they did, you know, a hundred years ago. And so this is one of those things that kind of, <coughs> excuse me, is, is kind of a, a dividing line kind of a, you know, allows us to look back in history and say, okay, uh, you know, these particular elements that they have uh, back in the day about, you know, sort of, you know, uh, having a, a firewall between sort of political liberties on one side, you know, that the government can't do certain things and economic liberties on the other side, which is, you know, uh, um, you know, those, if you go back before you know, World War Two and certainly before World War One, there was a, a firewall between those things. Right. Uh, but only essentially after World War Two and sort of the rise of, of sort of uh, the Austrian school and, and sort of economic neoliberalism do you start to get that you know and, and then later on reaganism and everything that we've kind of grown up with thatcherism and what have you uh the idea that any infringement upon your economic freedoms is necessarily also an infringement upon your political freedoms is just a conception that does not exist back in the you know uh back in the 1890s or, or 1920s there was a, a very clear analysis of of understanding of, of all right these are things that you can do these are things that you can't do in terms of the politics and, and so you know even the supreme court was very clear that uh you know that if you want to look for political liberties as outlined in the constitution and, and the bill of rights it does not say that you have a right to poison somebody for profit that's not something that you can do had nothing to do with your own ability to imbibe alcohol it was about again sort of the uh the economic side of it and so that's that's one area where i think um, you know, uh, one of the, the broader takeaways of the book that has very little to do with, with you know, drinking and prohibitionism per se is recognizing how our understandings of even core concepts like freedom and liberty have kind of evolved over time. And we just don't recognize it because we assume that those are forever eternals, that freedom is freedom, you know, a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago. It's the same sort of thing. No, people's understandings of those things evolve and change over time. Absolutely. And 
and we'll circle back to that toward uh, in the end of the interview. But I did want I wanted to jump into the first two sections. So the first one about the continental empires of continental Europe, Russia, uh, and also the British Empire, this world-spanning empire. And there's a remarkable juxtaposition that comes through in every chapter, uh, especially in those two parts, which is the idea of alcohol in Europe versus the al versus alcohol in colonized or uh, areas imperialized. I'm not sure if that's a verb, but you know, in, in imperialized areas. That that alcohol in the continent and in Britain would be seen as you know that's where the the temperance movements are happening happening more per se, uh, or or happening in a more recognized way. I think is a better way to put it. Whereas in areas like Africa, especially South Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, in uh, North America, in any of the British territories, alcohol colonialism, alcohol imperialism were such powerful forces that they effectively silenced the the many of the voices of those who were oppressed and, and suffered because of it so just to give you know a little context of that talking about africa say that distilled well this is talking about all areas but distilled liquor was the engine that fueled white colonial expansion and exploitation and domination by 1885, 10 million gallons of rum alone was pouring into Africa yearly. That's not including whiskey, um, gin, as we find out important from the Dutch and from Belgium. Uh, there's a story from Belgian missionary Constant Dedekin going up the Congo River and how every single stop they're unloading more and more alcohol. The whole ship's full of alcohol just to pass out along the trip. And in so you have this very strong juxtaposition of what narratives are allowed to happen and what narratives are allowed to be recorded between those in Europe and those in uh, the colonized areas. And there was a question there, and I'm blanking on it, but the, um, <laughs> the point, I guess, being that you, also, you make a comparison at one point to alcohol, between alcohol and guns in terms of colonialism. And, you know, could this kind of colonialism and imperialism have occurred without alcohol? It's a brand new year, the perfect time for a new whiskey experience. This January, my new experience is at Loch Lee Distillery. Sitting on the lowland coast of Scotland, Loch Lee is a relatively new distillery with some iconic names behind it. Set up by Malcolm Rennie, and now overseen by John Campbell, Loch Lee sits on a farm once tilled by the patron saint of everything Scottish himself, Robert Burns. Loch Lee's first release, the Sewing Edition First Crop, was one of my top new whiskies of 2022 and one of the best first releases of the year. At the end of 2022, I picked up the newer Our Barley and Harvest Edition releases in advance of my own interview with John Campbell, and both were worthy follow-ups. Each built on the clean, barley-forward, and mildly lowland style of the Sewing Edition by layering in multiple cask finishes. Each comes in a patterned glass bottle, evoking the barley where all of this starts. Keep an eye out for early 2023. 
Their Fallow edition is set to hit shelves in Q1, and I, for one, can't wait. The third in the annual series of limited seasonal bottlings, Lochley Fallow Edition First Crop reflects the season of autumn on the farm, when the fields are left fallow to rest after a busy harvest. This will be the first Lochley release to be matured solely in 100% first fill Oloroso sherry butts. As always, it is non-show filtered with no coloring. It comes with a beautiful lavender label to match the rich colors of the previous seasonal bottlings. A big thank you to Impex Beverages for being the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor, and cheers to you all in a new year. Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. For the holiday season, December, January, we've got even more bottles than usual available to try and available to buy. If you are a U.S.-based listener, there are at least 12 casks just for this month's release, plus additional ones coming out. If you are a U.K. listener or an EU listener, there are over 30, a ridiculous number of bottles that you can try and get your hands on. Remember to use code WRP at checkout to get 25% off your annual membership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, an interesting question. I mean, we, we think about colonialism as coming at the barrel of a gun, right? You know, it's a white man's domination, you know, kind of invading into areas, establishing rule, whether you're talking about India or Africa or or anything like that. Uh, but we, again, kind of take alcohol and, and put it over here on the shelf because that's kind of a niche concern, but we don't recognize how important it was uh, to the, the colonization process. And you, you again, in, in some of these countries in, in Europe, you can see it, 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 you know, you can see it in relations between, you know, the English and the Irish and kind of that early colonial relationship there. Uh, but really, you're right. I think Africa is, is the place that really kind of hammers home the division uh, between the colonizer and the colonized and the dynamics that are associated with that, um, you know, in 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 very black and white terms and i guess you can mean that by by skin color where you know the colonizers are white and the the natives are black and and uh and uh you know those are the the, the particular dynamics and so uh but yeah it, it's fascinating to think about you know how this whole process evolves of you know talk about is al- alco colonization right um and it, it evolves in the same place in the same way uh, if you you know see it in in North America, or if you see it in South Africa, if you see it in India or Australia, Aboriginal populations, um, you know it, it follows the same playbook every single place. And so it's effectively you know kind of a three step process. One, you kind of introduce uh, distilled spirits of a potency that you know indigenous populations have never had to deal with before. Um, two, you know you watch them get rip roar and drunk. Uh, and that's, you know, can be sort of the, the pretext for, you know, having them scrawl X's on, uh, uh, on, you know, legal documents and so on, taking their land, taking their people and, and, and resources and so on. Uh, but also kind of then using that, that drunkenness as an excuse for sort of the, the white man's burden, right? Oh, look, look at this. You know, these, this is, this is not, um, civilized, you know, civil, they, they can't hold their liquor. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the thing that you introduced is now running rabid, you know, through their through their uh, populations, and now you, that's becoming your justification for extending your imperial rule. Um, and so there's there's kind of that element to it, uh, but the other one is the the economic elements, right? And so 
in many cases, you're having, again, sort of these, you talk about North America or, or Africa, or, you know, the Belgian Congo or South Africa or wherever, you know, you have, um, you know, European colonists coming into these uh, native populations who are doing just fine, by the way, you know, they've, they've lived there for hundreds, if not thousands of years without you, right? And, and, um, and in many cases, you want to start trade, right? So, okay, well, what do, what do you have? <clears throat> that these Native American populations want and what do they have that you want, right? You know, if you talk about Africa, you know, you've got, um, you've got uh, obviously mineral resources, but you've got, uh, uh, you've got ivory, you've got, you know, rubber, you've got palm, uh, you know, palm rubber, you've got all sorts of stuff. In, in North America, you've got uh, furs, which are very in vogue and, and so on. Um, so there, there's, and obviously slaves as well, you know, people, you can, you can, that's, that's a resource as well, if you want to be, uh, I guess, really crass about it. Um, but then what is it? Okay, so they have a lot that, you know, the, 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 the white trader can offer. Uh, so what does the white trader have to offer these Native American populations that have been doing just fine for for hundreds of years, right? You know, you could you could introduce it. And so this is the the, the challenge of some of these um, explorers and and sort of the first generations of uh, of traders with you know uh, with with Native Americans and, and Native Africans. You know, it's like okay, well, what do I have that you want, right? You know, you could trade with them a you know uh, some cookware, like some iron pots and stuff like that, and and they can use that. Great, you know, we'll trade. Uh, so many furs for an iron pot, and that'll be great for our community. We can cook stuff for the next 50 years, right? We're probably not going to need another one for 50 years, right? So you can just go and, and leave us alone for another 50 or, you know, or trade blankets, right? You got some nice textiles and blankets and stuff like that. So we get these, these sorts of things. Great. Uh, that's awesome. That'll last 20 years, right? <laughs> or 10 years. Who knows? Um, so there's nothing there that is is ultimately, you know, makes the white trader necessary to the local population, uh, except for distilled spirits, right? These are industrial um, alcohols, right? These are things that's, uh, that are not found in nature. You have to, you know, distill them through uh, industrial techniques. Um, and if you have that ability, if you have that knowledge, well, then that that's something that you can make fairly easily that your native american populations or, or native african populations they can't do right and if you get them addicted to it well now you've become the only source of that uh of that good right of of that uh, distilled liquor or whiskey or, or vodka or whatever it is that you have you know suddenly you're you're you have a, a product with a self-renewing demand that is never going to go away and you've gone from being sort of this marginalized person who's kind of coming into the the native population and and, and just kind of being a trade now you become central to it right that the native tribe cannot live without you right you know and uh well they could i suppose and that's what i guess the the native chieftains often would say we're better off without this person kind of constantly taking our stuff and, and pouring liquor down our throats um and so that's where you start to get sort of that that domestic uh or should I say that that native temperance uh, and, and movement against uh, sort of this, this alcohol colonization. Uh, and that's the same thing you have, like I said, in North America, South Africa, <laughs> Belgian Congo, India, you know, pretty much everywhere around the globe. And, you know, you mentioned the term white man's burden, which, you know, famously made up, well, made famous by Kipling, I should say. And then, uh, but it was definitely the mindset that was pervasive at in, in these intervening centuries, it was always the, as you said, get them introduce something that gets them drunk, that 
makes them use the phrase clutch their clutch your pearls and say oh they're savage because they're they're drunk which they're drunk on something that you gave them so and it's yeah. it's a vicious cycle that was repeated and you know another one of the chapter titles that was very apt on this was black man's burden white man's liquor in southern africa and i in you know of course it's, we got about an hour and a half so we're we're doing this very um tightly but just pulling out a couple of things again here just in southern africa number one highly recommend reading king leopold's ghost ghost if you haven't read it, it should be a must read for everybody um, to understand colonialism as a whole but also you know just a couple of the statistics and notes here that in southern africa liquor slash alcohol poisoning was the primary cause of death among black miners, which would quote burn their bodies unquote with liquor samples deemed unfit for human consumption, having been cut with creosote, turpentine, or other poisons. At the same time, in uh, what is today Zimbabwe, what would have been Rhodesia for many many years, nine tenths of Europeans' deaths were attributed directly or indirectly to drinking, in in Bulawayo. I mean, these are statistics that are affecting the uh, colonizing population, are affecting the native population. Uh, that are it's decimating to them. And mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to pull out the example of the visit of the three Swana kings to London. And so this is a mission of three kings who uh, were in the area under uh, Belgian occupation or Belgian colonization, who fought against the idea of alcohol colonialism or certainly try to figure out the best way for their people to survive um, without having to fight a constant war. Um, I know I'm shortening the story of that quite a bit to make the question work, but I'm, I was curious to ask, you know, with the mission of these three Kings where they went to London to basically petition, make their case that European power shouldn't be able to, or shouldn't be allowed to just run rampant without colonialism. Would the mission have been as effective or as successful if King Kama, for example, wasn't Christian or wasn't converted? You know, and and mm-hmm. to that end, what what made them so different from other kings, cultures, and tribes that also would have been subsumed, but yet they were able to make their case effectively? So I know it's a two-part right. question, but <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's uh, I mean it's a fascinating history, uh, and it's it's one that again doesn't really most people are like oh what's Bashuwanalan <laughs> what's what's Botswana we don't even know what that is on a map right so it's trying to to draw up some interest in that was 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 fascinating especially going back you know a hundred years uh, or going back to the eighteen nineties which is when this this sort of thing happens when you've got you know so I guess the the backdrop is you've got um, you know, Cecil Rhodes and his British South African company is kind of making further incursions into, uh, into uh, you know, the Kalahari Desert, you know, the steppe lands and uh, thistle lands of, of what is today Botswana, um, as he's trying to, you know, kind of gobble up more and more territory uh, for himself under the guise of, you know, sort of being part of the, the British Empire. Um, you know, ultimately, he wanted to, you know, lay tracks from Cape Town to Cairo, and that was kind of his uh, his big goal. And so in, in many cases, you had, you know, he was 
it was oftentimes like divide and conquer kind of uh, kind of of of, of rule, uh, but not just in terms of divide and conquer again with the with the gun, uh, but also with with alcohol, right? And so introducing alcohol, profiting from it uh, in all these areas, uh, you know, white traders profiting, but also you know the British South Africa Company in in, in general as well. Uh, and so what made this a little bit different um, when it came to King Kama the Third. Uh, of Betchewanalan and some of his other, um, you know, uh, close associates there in in what is today Botswana, uh, is that you know they tied their own, um, I guess, sovereignty to this question of sobriety, right? So uh, he was famous for uh, kicking out white traders who would bring alcohol into into Bechuanaland and and and, and um, even though it was kind of a protectorate of uh, of Queen Victoria, uh, you know, he would he would expel them. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Uh, and so this became like a, a big thorn in their side. Right. And this became part of his his thing was that, you know, um, he saw the temperance cause or the, the prohibition cause or the anti-alcohol cause, if you will, um, as being part and parcel of, of sovereignty, right? That, you know, and, and uh, one of the, the quotes he uses as he's kicking out all these, these British traders at, at one point in time is he says, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a black man, but I am king of this territory. And uh, as long as I am, you know, you will do what I say, you know, when you, when you conquer this territory, you can set your own rules. But the, for the for the time being, this is my territory, and you have to abide by my rules, right? So it was kind of this recognition of the intertwining of of temperance and sovereignty that became uh, that became part of it. And so, uh, kind of fast forwarding, right? So uh, you've got this this uh, this clash between uh, Kama, uh, you know, who's very much against alcohol, uh, you know, the introduction of this this whiskey into his territory, and and uh, you know, so the British South Africa Company of of Cecil Rhodes. Uh, and they, you know, they come to an impasse. Uh, the two sides don't like each other, don't trust each other for, for good reason. Uh, and so finally, uh, Kama decides to sail for for England, uh, and uh, he and his, uh, you know, Bathian and and uh, Sebele, uh, they arrive in in Britain in 1895, and and uh, they they want a uh, they want to meet with the Queen, or at least to meet with um, with Chamberlain, the Foreign Secretary, and and uh, the Colonial Secretary, and and uh, get a promise that you know that. Bechuanalan will be a protectorate of the queen, but not part of the British South Africa company because, um, you know, they, they see the benevolence of being under the queen, but they recognize that the South Africa company is there to make money at their expense you know, by getting them drunk and, and, and taking away everything that they have. Um, and so, so that's part of it. One, I think is that they were the only ones to, uh, to endeavor to do or something that dramatic and, and get up and go and, and, and take, you know, take the fight to London as it were, you know, and, and sort of, do an end around uh, the traditional colonial, uh, you know, avenues of communication and, and, and power, I suppose, in that way. <coughs> Excuse me. But I guess the other thing is, is as you said, um, the, uh, the the fact that that Kama was, uh, you know, converted to Christianity. Uh, I don't think the other two were, but uh, but the idea was that right, right. Um, you know, that they would travel you know uh, even while it was the so-called silly season and everybody was out of london you know at their estates and doing stuff so the so politics was kind of shut down in london uh so they just kind of traveled around britain for the better part of a couple months kind of going from one church to another uh raising their issue you know and and sort of impressing upon uh you know kind of kind of pressing the flesh doing sort of a grassroots movement with um all these different constituencies uh you know from 
Scotland in the north to uh, you know to England in the south. They traveled all over the place uh, and and won over a lot of adherents. And they kind of allowed those people to put pressure on their members of parliament and and uh, and their representatives to um, you know to to do the right thing, right, and to to side with King Kama and uh, and and the natives, uh, you know, against the British South Africa Company, which is eventually what's uh, what they ended up doing. And and so um, so yeah, so I, I think definitely so there's the the religious aspect to it. Uh, but also, I think the the audacity in some ways of getting out there uh, and, and and kind of uh, doing an end around again around the the usual um, channels of communication and, and colonization in that way. And as you said, it was it was successful really through Kama's death in in early 1900s. It was one of the few lands that was able to maintain that both sovereignty and at least some measure of temperance and and sobriety. Oh yeah, and uh, you know, actually, it was really weird. You know, the, the book is all fun and, and games and whatnot, but uh, it's, it's fun to, to write and whatnot. I think the thing that actually has, um, you know, that, that I've written that's probably had the most uh, engagements or the most eyeballs on it was I, I kind of took that story of uh, of Betuwanaland and uh, and and turned it into a Twitter thread, and it kind of went viral. This was a year or so ago. Um, and I think more people have read that Twitter thread about Botswana. And how, you know, if it weren't for Kinkama and prohibitionism, there wouldn't be a Botswana today. You know, it would be, it would have been gobbled up into the Union of South Africa um, and it wouldn't be an independent entity. Uh, but it's it's kind of that unusual legacy of prohibitionism that this country even exists nowadays, given given these, um, uh, you know, these historical developments. Absolutely. And it really is a fascinating story. Of course, in the, in the book, there's a lot more time devoted to it, a lot more words devoted to it. Uh, and again, I just urge you to read the book and, and buy a copy and, and take a look through. So chugging along we're uh, to another comparison. So I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I wanted to focus more on the global aspect of it, except for when the comparisons with North America and the U.S. history of temperance prohibition uh, came together. Another of the really impressive juxtapositions that I found were between North America and seemingly the rest of the world in many cases uh, in terms of how it was colonized and and the imperialization that happened. And in the context of the book, what I'm thinking about is many of the tribes in, in Africa, some of the Aboriginal civilizations and other areas that were colonized by the British and the Europeans had at one point fermented beverages or naturally fermented uh, drinks, things like that. So they've been exposed to it. But in comparison, in North America, uh, you wrote that, you know, there were, unlike in Europe, Africa, and Asia, even fermented beverages were largely unknown in North America before colonization. So it made the devastating consequences of the introduction of alcohol that much more devastating. Mm -hmm. So there's that one juxtaposition of almost, you know, jumping from point A to point d in the rest of the world and then jumping from nothing to point d in north america and the other half being in the rest of the world there seems to have been a slightly different motive and this is me reading into it so so feel free to correct me on this the motive of certainly exploitation and uh to colonization taking advantage of the native tribes and locals but in I'm thinking particularly in Africa, but it's not unique to Africa, the idea of 
enslaving the people and but ultimately keeping them alive and addicted to alcohol clashes a bit with the idea of the you know native american tribes where at least to my knowledge you know they weren't enslaved they weren't they were simply killed and kicked out of their land and replaced by the colonizers rather than overseen by the colonizers if that makes sense and so i'm curious what to make of that juxtaposition between the two sections of the world basically everything versus the north american example and how the alcohol trade played into that yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, it's in terms of those dynamics in, in uh, I don't know, maybe it could have been just a, a matter of scale, you know, in terms of uh, the Native American population, I believe was quite a bit less than what you would find in, you know, in, in Africa or, or certainly some of these area, other areas that were being colonized, India for certainly, uh, or if you're talking about, you know, sort of the um, uh, you know, British incursions into into China with the Opium Wars, same dynamic in, in many of those cases, uh, seems to have more in common with, um, you know, what we see in other sort of white settler British colonies in, in terms of, you know, not only Canada, but also uh, Australia, New Zealand uh, has that same sort of, you know, the, the same sort of dynamic, maybe because they were smaller populations on a much bigger, uh, much bigger territory um, that could allow for, for more of that uh, um, displacement, I suppose, rather than, uh, <laughs> rather than, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, sort of, uh, rule over these, these, uh, native populations rather than, you know, sort of depopulating them in mass in that way. So, uh, so that, that could be the case. I, I don't know offhand, you know, in terms of, you know, what, what, uh, what allowed for, for it in some cases, but not, uh, necessarily in others. Yeah, it was, it was just, it's something that came up to, as I was thinking about it and just, yeah, it, it stuck out. And it also stuck out because mm-hmm. of the, well, one, <laughs> the story of how Mohican tribes first encountered alcohol in Manhattan, or what we now know as Manhattan, 1609. I'm a native New Yorker, so, you know, it's fun in a very macabre kind of way to know that the name of the island in some translations comes from the place where we all became intoxicated. Um, that was fun telling my wife in preparation for this interview. Um, <laughs> uh, the the other part of it was that as early as the you know 1830s, when when Tokyville and and Beaumont were going through America and their tour, that eventually became Democracy in America, the book Democracy in America. I should I should say. Even at that time, as temperance organizations were starting to build, you know, the, the, around the time of Beecher's sermons and and the start of the American Temperance Society, uh, even in 1831, they were recording many events and in many instances negative to the native populations, particularly around the use and imparting of alcohol. That, you know, the drink kills more of them than armies ever could. And that's a quote from Democracy in America. It was that's kind of what fed into that question of why was it different here versus in areas where people were enslaved versus simply depopulated um to use a very couth term i guess yeah Um, hey everybody just jumping in here for a quick second for a historical correction i wasn't sure about this after the interview so i had to look up some other sources and i was incorrect in my supposition for the question there was widespread enslavement of Native American populations in North America during colonial and imperialist times, equal to that at least of 
Africa and Southeast Asia in proportion, if not in overall numbers. So keep that in mind as the question progresses. And please enjoy the rest of the interview with Professor Mark Shroud. So I know we are in our last 15 minutes or so. So uh, I want to hit two topics definitely before we go. One being just touching on this idea of all great reforms go together, which is a, a central theme running through the book uh, in all three sections and crossing all boundaries you can possibly think of. And then simply the, you know, the, the legacy of temperance and prohibition. Um, so starting with just the, the idea of all great reforms going together, I mentioned at the beginning that the bi biographers of some of these people, Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, uh, leave out their prohibitionist tendencies and the temperance part of them. But in, in Smashing the Liquor Machine, you make a solid point of linking women's, women's suffrage, excuse me, abolitionism, temperance, and overall progressivism as a singular achievement that crossed classes, races, nationalities, and oceans. This is an idea of all these things came together over time into perhaps what we would call the progressive movement, but they were steps that ultimately came together. So the, the two questions that came out of this, these themes were one, uh, I have to ask about the meaning of the inclusion of the word uh, Christian in some of the societies as well as just language around it. Um, and I know before you answered that in other interviews, I know you've been hesitant to touch the religious aspect because I know it's a, it's a whole other sandbox too, that a potentially explosive sandbox too. Uh, but, you know, I do have to ask about it because it, it factors into, like I said, the terminology, also the relationship between the West and the Ottoman Empire and all those things. So let's, let's start there. What, what's the meaning of, of Christian in the context of this argument? Yeah, and so might be a maybe I'll back into this one a little bit, but uh, you know, so so the, the conventional understanding that we have of temperance and prohibitionism is that it was, as I mentioned before, it was this conservative evangelical uh, sort of backlash, you know, uh, against modernization and immigration. It's, it's built as a very you know a reactionary movement, um, and uh, and at the end of the day. From, from what I found of it, you know, uh, in the United States and globally, it seems to be uh, a very progressive move, as, as you're suggesting. So it is tied in, you know, uh, with, uh, with with suffragism and uh, abolitionism and, and is part of this movement. And so you find it, you know, not only in the United States, but around the world that uh, the, the, the populations that are sort of the most ardent supporters of temperance and prohibitionism tend to be the most marginalized populations. They tend to be, you know, and disenfranchised populations. So women, um, you know, Native Americans, African-Americans, um, you know, so other marginalized groups in, in, in that sort of way. Uh, and so when it comes to proposing, you know, tearing down the old understandings and hopefully building up some new ones, um, what really struck me was I was doing a reading, I think it was on the, on, on sort of the, um, uh, on populists in uh, you know in in the Midwest uh, in the in the 1890s and whatnot, and they talked about it as a coalition of Marx, Jefferson, and Jesus. <laughs> um, and I, I thought that I thought that was really astute. I think that's that's kind of the same sort of thing that we're talking about here. So so Marx, in that it was a movement uh, that had at its root 
um, economic exploitation and sort of resistance to economic exploitation by different groups. Um, you know, Jefferson in that it was also, uh, you know, about political rights and establishing, you know, your freedom not to be uh, taken advantage of by, uh, you know, by the, by the liquor seller or the, the saloon keeper, uh, but also Jesus, which is the idea that there is a moral element to this, right? You know, you cannot deny that this is part of, you know, that, that there, that there wasn't, you know, a Christian element to it, to be sure, um, an evangelical element to it. Um, but I was thinking about, you know, this is like, that doesn't, you know, when you, you attach the the notion Christian onto a movement or, or saying it was a moral movement um, in some ways kind of, it, it, it allows us to sort of, take our own predispositions about kind of contemporary politics about what a Christian evangelical movement would be. If you're talking about like, you know, restrict restricting women's abortion rights or, uh, or, or things along those lines and kind of projecting them back in, into time as well. Um, I tend to look at it as kind of part and parcel of this global movement for, you know, for, for human rights in, in many ways, that is kind of part of this mega movements of uh, a, a sort of normative change that includes things like, uh, equal rights uh, for women, for African Americans, for uh, you know, for Native Americans, for all these different uh, sort of subaltern populations. Um, so I, I think that's kind of what it is. But also recognizing that it was again, as as you mentioned, also a, you know a, a, a morality infused movement. So you didn't have to be Christian about it. Uh, you know, so it was it was fascinating with some of these cases, um, like looking at there's a chapter on the Ottoman Empire. And you had these uh, this this movement for temperance, um, you know, and uh, they were asking about it, would it be possible to establish a women's Christian temperance movement in Istanbul, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, like you understand what the Christian means, so like yeah, yeah, it's, but it's not like the denominational aspect that was important. It was the you know it was the focus on sort of this uh, you know on the liquor traffic in many ways. So they did establish women's Christian temperance union, you know, uh, ancillaries. Uh, made up by Muslim women, and and uh, and so it wasn't necessarily the defining elements uh, in all those cases. Um, but also, you know, the more I thought about it, it's kind of stepping back and taking a broader look at it. I mean, we look at, at some things like you know the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s. Um, you know, well, we consider that to be a religious movement. You know, you've got a lot of. Uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and, uh, you know, all these reverends, uh, you know, they, they're all invoking the, the, you know, Christian doctrine and, uh, and the word of God. Right. And so it's like, okay. Um, you know, part of it is, is kind of recognizing how you can have those, those moral influences on a, uh, on, on a broader political and economic movement uh, without necessarily having it being solely defined as just being about you know the uh uh those those religious aspects so i think that's hopefully something that i would hope is a, a bit of a corrective that comes out of this uh this book is that yeah certainly you know religion uh morality was was part of these movements um but it wasn't the only part right and I, I would hesitate to define the entire thing based upon uh some of those aspects so it's an important distinction to make and uh again as you said on one hand you have Rauschenbusch, who plays a large role in the latter half of the book, saying Christian Christianity is in its nature revolutionary. Jesus always sided with the poor against the rich, the powerless against the powerful, uh, which is not, as you said, it's not necessarily denominational or even religious in a certain respect. You know, mm -hmm. Islam recognizes Jesus as a prophet, doesn't mean they worship him, but they 
recognize him as a prophet and as someone who I can't believe I'm putting it this way, but you know, had good things to say, let's say. So, right. Um, and what's interesting, you know, some of the, in the, the concluding sections is that you, you know, I've, I've uh, included some, some quotes from, uh, from this guy, Pussyfoot Johnson, who's kind of this, this uh, I'm writing his biography next. He's just one of those fascinating guys, <clears throat> but in his, his older, I mean, he's writing about Muhammad, uh, you know, and, and talking about uh, his time in, in Turkey at a time when Turks were vilified and Islam was vilified and talk about him in very glowing terms that, you know, this is say what you want about Islam, but he saved more people from alcoholism than anyone in the world today, you know, and, and that was not going to fly very well to the audience that he was writing to back in the 1920s, I'm sure. But, uh, but yeah, there was kind of this recognition that there are, um, you know, there are differences certainly between denominations and between religions, uh, but there are also sort of broader moral understandings that everybody is kind of working towards together. And and again, you, I think this was in the context of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, you made the the note that the Quran is not where the main prohibitions against intoxication and alcohol come. It's it's in the writings and the teachings of Muhammad, and which are for listeners who may not know, they are different things. Um, and it's, it's worth noting because the question is obviously take it to the 30,000 foot view is how does a supposedly Muslim empire, um, have an issue with prohibition? You know, why is it even a question there? Um, you know, the, you think that would be a really easy chapter to write, right? And it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's so much more nuanced than that because of its complexity and the complexity of the empire. Um, so there, you know, there's there's a whole list of questions I have on that, but we'll, you know, again, we're we are pressed, so I'm going to go forward into the final one. I do want to note uh, just before we do that, um, I haven't, I don't think I've even mentioned uh, William Pussyfoot Johnson's name yet, and he is perhaps the uh, primary protagonist, if you want to put it that way, in the story and in the book. Um, I'm I'm I left him out mainly because he is such a huge character and because he's been talked about um, in, in other interviews, but uh, to say that he is central to this storyline is not doing it justice. And uh, those who read the book and listen to other interviews will certainly get more of that. And are you committed to writing his biography? I know in previous interviews, you were kind of yes. not sure yet. So you, you're committed. Yeah. All right. So yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm doing it. I just actually uh, just today I, I sent out, I've, I've been in negotiations. I found a, um, uh, I found some long lost documents of his, uh, some scrapbooks from the 19 teens, uh, that somehow survived a flood, uh, at the anti-saloon league archives, uh, that I've, I've been able to, to find and I'm, I'm going to utilize those. And so I just, I, I just sent away a check, uh, this morning, uh, to, to try to, to get those, uh, primary documents, um, uh, that were, that were out there on the market. Um, so that's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So, so, you know, a lot of this, uh, I guess, circling back to, I guess, one of your pre previous questions about like writing these sorts of things. Um, one of this, one of the few things that I had, you know, when I was coming up for tenure, I had this idea that I, you know, I, I kept coming across this guy, William Pussyfoot Johnson with his colorful name. And, uh, he's kind of this globe trotting, uh, prohibitionist and he always seemed to be popping up everywhere in Russia and in, in India and in South Africa and everywhere he was there right and so I was utterly fascinated by this guy and I you know I, I spent time I went to uh, I've been to his childhood home I've been to his grave I've you know transcribed his uh his un unpublished autobiography uh, you know so I, I've 
done all this stuff. And uh, I wanted to write his biography because I thought it was so utterly fascinating. <clears throat> Uh, but, you know, one of my, uh, I guess my department chair, um, this, I guess this was one of the few times I, I, I kind of took other people's advice. He says, uh, he says, um, uh, he says, Mark, uh, biography is not quote unquote political science. Um, and uh, I, I can't even justify that as political science. So why don't you hold off, write this other book that you're thinking about and do the biography once you get tenure. And it's like, okay, I'll do that. So, so I wrote, you know, the, the smashing the liquor machine with the idea that, you know, the, uh, the, the pussyfoot biography would come after it. But, you know, as he appears in this book, he's, you know, I kind of envision him as, as like, um, um, as, as, uh, you know, in Dante's Inferno, he's like, he's like Virgil, right? He kind of takes the reader from one chapter to another and introduces, you know, sort of these different, cause he was, he was everywhere. It seemed to be. Uh, and, and so that was, that was certainly part of it. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited about, uh, you know, the prospects of finally getting down to, uh, to, to writing up the, the auto, excuse me, the, the biography of, of Pussyfoot Johnson at some point. And I think you have a you had a much more complimentary comparison there. I thought of kind of the Forrest Gump aspect of it, where he's just, you know, everywhere you look, he's just he's there. You know, you're talking yep. about a completely different part of the world, different story, and suddenly, Pussyfoot Johnson is there with you know making a tour <laughs> of of Africa, a tour of Belgium or you know or London. Um, so definitely we're looking looking into so. And uh, his story is is a lot more interesting. I mean, it's a lot more. There's more obviously that could fit in a, in a biography rather than just you know, what I was able to fit into to some of these things. I mean, he went, he spent time in the Russian underground. It didn't get mentioned in the book. You know, he was, uh, he was trying to make common cause with uh, sort of the anti-Czarist underground. And then, you know, he laments later on. That's like when the war broke out, uh, I'm sure all those people are dead now that I met, you know, because the, the czars would weed out anybody who was part of that opposition and, uh, and, and kill them. So, you know, yeah crazy he's got crazy stories uh and uh it, it's fascinating to find them you know sort of layered into uh into our history and and so yeah that'll be the next thing to look at as well i'm very much looking forward to that as well uh, i have uh just two more questions for you uh just to quickly list through you know, just a couple of topics that we haven't got time to there's entire sections on american imperialism in the philippines and beyond and how that affected things uh, more about the women's christian temperance union and all of the temperance unions and societies that uh, that grew up in these periods military canteen rules the main laws the first prohibition legislation in the u.s somewhat successful these previous books that you've written several different countries that we've kind of skipped over more about leo tolstoy like they there's so much in this book that it uh, you can really only understand it if you read it so um you know want to make sure that those are at least mentioned. So the last two questions I have for you then. Number one, this applies somewhat to America, but I think could be globally as well. So we mentioned at the beginning that by 1915, liquor was the fifth largest industry in the US. It was making up these huge percentages of budgets of entire countries. And yet in some ways, the liquor machine seems to have been caught flat-footed by the rapid rise in prohibitionism and related legislation. And you, know, you have a quote in there that says, American prohibition is as much a story of liquor machine collapse as it is of one-sided temperance crusades. And I'm curious that, you know, how does an industry with so much power, so much influence for so many decades and centuries, uh, 
get caught flat-footed like that? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, in some ways, I, I think the easy question, the, the easy answer would be to say it's greed, you know, and that everybody's just kind of out for themselves. Uh, so if you if you know if, if you're watching sort of the last uh, the, the run up to the 18th Amendment, you know, in, in maybe the 20 years, you know, going from uh, you know from 1900 to to 1920, um, you know, back in the days it was you know the, the the liquor machine, you know, in terms of the liquor producers and their political influence, uh, corrupt political influence, you know, has, has a very deep history. And, uh, you know, you you can find it going back to, you know, Tammany Hall in, uh, in New York City. Every town of every size had its own kind of mini Tammany Halls there. You know, the alcohol and, you know, the, the saloon keeper was sort of the center of political organization uh, in many cases. Um, and, and so that was that was all part of this, this corrupt system. And, and ultimately prohibition was kind of meant to root that out, you know? And so it's like, which is ironic now because everybody's, you know, like the, the, the stereotypical understanding of prohibition is that it was a failure because it, you know, generates organized crime and Al Capone and all that kind of stuff. It's like, wait a minute, you know, those were there around well before, you know, prohibition came about uh, in many cases, what they did is just kind of push it underground. Um, uh, but uh but yeah, but to get to your your question, yeah, you've got these um, these uh, you know th- these uh, producers in many countries, um, some of which are uh, are you know become the states themselves are, are profiting you know through monopolization. In the United States, it's you know usually through excise taxes and other sorts of liquor taxes that you know the state has a financial interest in it. Uh, but there's also kind of turf battles um, and sort of a, a different geography of political influence at, at different state levels uh, in the United States. And so, um, so part of it is, you know, you got, uh, on the one hand, you've got the brewers, uh, which tended to be stronger in the North and in, in major cities and your St. Louis and Milwaukee and Cincinnati and New York city and so on. Um, and, you know, but uh, the power of, of sort of the big brewing conglomerates was kind of limited because because, uh, because beer spoils and you can't really export it all that far. Right. So they, they become sort of, these little mini fiefdoms, right? Uh, but then you also get sort of the, you know, the, the big distillers, um, which have sort of more of a nationwide reach in, in some cases, but also, uh, you know, kind of regionally dotted. Uh, obviously, liquor distillers and and whiskey distillers in in, in Kentucky, for instance, uh, become very very powerful. And then they they start to have their sort of uh, organizing sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, sort of these these representative political factions right so the you know the the liquor dealers association and uh, and the brewers united states brewers association that are supposed to look after the interests of these uh the, these big <coughs> these big industries um and so so yeah you've got all sorts of pursuit of profit i think is is really what's uh, at, at the core of it that leads to some of these excesses uh on the one hand you have uh, which is happening throughout sort of the Gilded Age, sort of vertical integration uh, and monopolization. So, you know, you have breweries that are buying up saloons and, uh, you know, sort of the, they're, they're trying to squeeze every dollar that they can. Uh, and, you know, the local saloon keeper um, is trying to squeeze every dollar that they can. So they're trying to operate illegally on the side on Sundays. You know, they're trying to pay off everything. And so that, <coughs> excuse me, we get sort of the cycles of corruption and uh, and the associations with that, but it really does kind of fall apart um, again in sort of that 
10 years uh, before prohibitionism uh, with a lot of kind of bureaucratic infighting between these different uh, competing, you know, between the, the beer and the, the whiskey dealers in, in particular. And so when it came like to World War One, um, you know, and there was like this anti, you know, the, the anti-alcohol movement, uh, you know, there were people, especially, you know, the labor movement uh, were very strong on, on the notion that that beer was a working man's drink, you know, the socialists, the Eugene Debs you know, of the worlds and, and uh, you know, even in Germany in particular, you know, that, that was kind of the focus was that, you know, this is a good beneficial drink for, you know, for the worker after a long, hard day of working eight hours, they can come home. And uh, when it came to the war effort, um, the argument from the brewers was, was that, uh, yeah, it's the, those distillers, those are the bad guys. Those are the people who are making money hand over fist at people's expense. But if you really want to fight a good war, you have to have beer, right? Because that's the, you know, the mo motor of, uh, of productivity. Um, and, and for a while they succeeded, you know, and kind of, they, they had a bit of a stay of execution and kind of threw the whiskey dealers under the bus. Um, and then of course they got gobbled up by prohibition as well. A couple of years, you know, a couple of months later, as it turns out in 1919. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that that was kind of part of it, uh, was on the one hand, sort of this infighting between these di different, uh, you know, competing interests, um, but also not realizing until it was too late, like the horrible excesses, you know, you didn't have to be like a, a card carrying temperance member to look at a, a saloon in the 1880s, 1890s and go, wow, this is really bad. You know, not only, you know, there, there are no closing hours, people are being kept here until they're, you know, dead drunk in some cases until they're paupers. Um, you know, the, the, it's unsanitary, uh, it's gross, you know, and so, um, you know, there's prostitutes and there are pickpockets and there are gambling dens. And and yeah, so this is not like the, you know, the, the I mentioned this in this other kind of phrase I, I kind of threw out there in the conclusion. I talk about is the, the Ted Danson effect. We think of saloons as, as kind of like this romanticized, you know, old timey wild west, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> bar. Uh, and, and we kind of take you know, Ted Danson and Cheers, you know, Sam Malone and, and, you know, think about the, the saloon keeper as, as the bartender, he's the guy who's going to serve you a beer and listen to your troubles. And if you've had too many, he's going to pack you into a, a cab and send you home. It's like, no, that's not what this was about. This, you know, if you pack somebody into a cab or sent them home, that was money that you weren't making. Right. And you're in, I guess your, your focus was to make as much money as possible, whether you were the distiller or the brewer or the seller. Um, and, and so that kind of unscrupulousness led to the, some of these excesses, uh, and they really didn't recognize it until it was too late that this, uh, you know, the opposition, you know, sort of temperance and prohibitionism had grown to the degree that it was and that their, their concerns were really, really quite valid at that point. And, you know, to end it where, where it all began with the story of Carrie Nation, she was not breaking up these saloons of what we consider happy hours. She was breaking them up at seven thirty-eight in the morning when, he, when it was still full, still people getting poor drinks. So that speaks to you exactly yeah. what you were just describing. Um, that was one of those little vignettes of history that just kind of blew my mind. That, Wait, in the morning? Seven in the morning. She was it, there in the morning. I mean, it, undersc <laughs> it underscores it's probably better than anything else could. You know, it's not happening at night. It's because people are dead drunk at eight in the morning. Yep. So, yep. you know, with that, of course, there are always more and more questions to ask, but I've, you've been very, very generous. So Dr. Mark Schrad, thank you so much for taking the time with me tonight to talk through your book, Smashing the Liquor Machine, A Global History of Prohibition. Definitely urge people to take a look through it. To, you can find it on uh, Amazon, at local bookstores. I'm sure I found mine at, at Barnes & Noble, so I'm 
pretty sure you can find yours there too. Um, also take a look for his other books, including Vodka Politics. And I will be on the lookout for the biography of Pussyfoot Johnson. Awesome. As well. Appreciate it. Um, so um, hang on with me for just a minute, as I promised. Uh, and thank you everyone for listening. Uh, make sure to follow, subscribe, share with your friends and family. This has been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast, and I will talk to you next week.